0: You may be seated. Welcome. Children, it's great to see you. Have fun in class. Okay, that's great. Be nice to your teachers. Really thankful for all of our children's ministry teachers that work, serve week in and work week out. And, and I, I will tell you, in fact, we have a lunch today for our children's ministry servants. And I'm just so encouraged I think we have like 55 servants that are going to be going to that lunch and uh, just so thankful for all that really make a big difference in our ministry. I'm just, okay, I'm going to go off for a minute, but I'm just reminded of Mark chapter 2. And in Mark chapter 2, Jesus was in Capernaum and the house was surrounded with people and these four men brought their friend to Jesus, but they couldn't get in. If you remember, they went up on the roof and they to tear away the roof and then they lowered him down with four different ropes If you remember, Jesus looked up, he saw their faith, and he says, you've been healed. And the fact is, those four men up on the roof weren't even in the room. But it was because of their faith and their service that their friend got saved. And so when we have people working in our children's ministry, serving in our children's ministry like they do, so selflessly... They're holding the rope so other people in here can hear the gospel. So we're very thankful for that. Thankful for all of you that serve in our uh, children's ministry. All right, I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles if you wouldn't find your way to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter is towards the end of the New Testament. If you get to 1, Second, 3 John, you've gone too far. If you get to Hebrews, you've not gone far enough. And we are going to look into 1 Peter as we continue in this series looking up when life is down. After coming to Christ in January of 1998, someone mentioned to me that there were over 300 prophecies of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're all perfectly fulfilled in Christ. I was blown away by that. That was an amazing thing to think that in the Old Testament, the writings prior to Christ, the 39 books of the Old Testament... Over 300 prophecies that all pointed to Jesus. In fact, I learned that the Bible was all about Jesus from beginning to end. I could do a quick overview of the Bible if you would. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you see God creates the heaven and the earth. It's the creation account. Genesis chapter... So let me just go back to Genesis 1 and 2. You have this perfect relationship between God and man in the garden. Everything was very good. And then in chapter 3 enters Satan and you see the fall of man where man went against what God had commanded them to do. Subverted the word of God and man fell. Thus causing him to be separated from God. The rest of the Bible is all about God redeeming man back to himself. This break in relationship that was from the beginning had been broken. And there was nothing we could do in and of our own selves to repair that chasm. But God sent Jesus into this world to redeem all things back together. So you just have these, these various movements in the Bible. Creation, the fall, Redemption, And ultimately, we see in Revelation how God restores all things. But there's 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of a coming Messiah. In fact, shortly after we got saved, we, we started out in the NIV, both Pam and I, in the New International Version, and then somebody encouraged us to get at the time, a Nelson Study Bible, which we did, which was the New King James. And in that Nelson Study Bible, I'll never forget because somebody taught me how to read the cross references. So if you read a, an Old Testament passage, there might be a New Testament cross reference or even an Old Testament cross reference. But in the Nelson Study Bible, it had down by the uh, uh, the cross reference, it had a little open star if it was in the Old Testament and it was of a prophecy to come of Jesus. But then you go to that Corresponding um, uh, reference in the New Testament, and that star would be filled in. Example, Isaiah seven fourteen says that he would be born of a virgin. This this Messiah would be born of a virgin. There would be a little uh, star, and it would point you to Matthew cha- or Luke chapter one, and you would go there, and you would see the cross reference, and the star would be filled in. I started studying those because growing up Jewish, it was like, okay. If the Jews had been given all of these prophecies, how could they miss the Messiah when he came? Everything pointed to Jesus. Now, the more I read, the more I was blown away, the more I understood, the more excited I got about my salvation. It was like this huge jigsaw puzzle that you have without the box. And you start putting it all together. And as you put more pieces in, it makes more sense. Problem so often is when we read the Bible, we read it maybe for information or maybe a religious pursuit. Or maybe we can find some moral truths to help us live our lives a little bit better. But the fact is the Bible points to Jesus and the plan of redemption that God had laid out for us. And the fact that by by having this relationship with Jesus... We have assurance of eternal life. See, the scriptures have one purpose. To point to Jesus. To testify to Jesus that he is the Messiah. That he is the one that can save us from the penalty of our sins. Jesus is our great salvation. In fact, Jesus says this in John chapter 5. He's talking to the religious leaders and he says this in John chapter 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Like you're reading them and you think, okay, just knowing these words will give me eternal life. But he says, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. These were the religious leaders. They were off on the wrong track. See, Peter understood this and he knew that if those who were struggling in trials and persecutions would truly understand, truly comprehend the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, they understood the greatness of their salvation, they would be encouraged, which leads to my big idea. And that is this. Understanding the greatness and glory of your salvation should profoundly, deeply, greatly encourage you. Again, remember, Peter is writing to those that are suffering. And he wants to remind them why they should be encouraged. He's writing this letter as a note to help them to look up when life is down. Look at verse 10, chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, and we're going to go back to that. We're going to go back to all of this, actually. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So what Peter is doing here is he's recounting really four facts about their salvation. Something he wants them to know. Again, he's writing to those that have been dispersed throughout Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and he wants them to know four things about their, four facts about their salvation. First of all, it was foretold by the prophets. Their salvation, your salvation, was foretold by the prophets. Look again at verse, well, actually, the whole theme of Peter's introduction is about salvation. In fact, in verses 1 and 2, he says this. He, he, he talks about that, he speaks to the elect exiles, the, the election that has been foretold. Or that is according to the foreknowledge of God. In, cha- in verse 3, he, he talks about the fact that we've been, ca- we've been caused to be born again to a living hope. It is God who's caused us to be born again to a living hope. In verse 4 and 5, he speaks about our inheritance as a result of our salvation that is being kept in heaven for, my, for us. Verse 9, he speaks about the outcome of our, our faith the salvation of our souls. It is, it is through our faith in Jesus Christ that the outcome is the salvation of our souls. And then he says in verse 10, concerning this salvation. So it's like all this has been a buildup to understand the value, the importance, the, the greatness, the glory of our salvation. So the question becomes, what is salvation? So glad you asked. Well, its simplest root, It means to be delivered, to be preserved from danger or destruction. But this speaks more about spiritual salvation, which is the rescue of the human soul from sin, death, Satan, and hell. It's the rescue of our soul from the wages of our sin, which we know the wages of our sin is death. Now, that begs another question. Do you need to be saved? Not, do you feel like you need to be saved? Do you need to be saved? Prior to 1998, if you would have asked me, Bill, do you think you need to be saved? And I would have looked at you and said, saved from what? No, I'm fine. Leave me alone. But it would be kind of like you go on a raft trip on a river. Laying back, enjoying the beautiful weather, the canyon walls on either side of you. You've got your earbuds in, you're listening to some wonderful music. And unbeknownst to you, the current is starting to move faster, and you have no clue that around the corner is a 300 foot fall. Now, you don't think you need to be saved, but do you need to be saved? See, the reality is we all need salvation. We all need eternal salvation because because our sin has separated us from God. Our sin has put us under God's wrath. And just because you feel okay doesn't mean that you are. So somebody comes up to you and says, you're okay. Say, I am now, now that I have salvation in Jesus Christ, but I wasn't before. All of mankind needs salvation. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of our sin is death. That's why Jesus came. In fact, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when the angel Gabriel came and spoke to Joseph about the son that they would have, he says, and let me just put it up. She will bear a son, speaking of, his, speaking of Mary, not his wife, but his betrothed. He says, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus means God is salvation. In fact, Peter, in his his letter, he tells us why we need salvation. Look at verse 2, chapter 2, verse 24. In chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says this, speaking of Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Go on in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 18. In verse 3, verse 18, he says this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. It is, it is Jesus who took our place on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might live, and be made alive in the spirit. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. He says, for it is time for, for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel or do not, who do not embrace the gospel of God? And then we see in verse uh, chapter 5, verse 8, where Peter says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You may not feel like you need to be saved, but everyone needs salvation. So concerning this salvation, verse 10, the prophets foretold it. See, Jesus wasn't just some random guy who showed up 2,000 years ago. The prophets foretold it beforehand. In fact, that word prophet, it's, it's to be a foreteller. A foreteller of future events. Prophets were those who spoke for God. In fact, the foretelling of Jesus goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Right after the fall. God gives him a glimmer of hope where he speaks of the seed of the woman. And if you know anything about biology or physiology, you know that the woman doesn't have a seed. But it speaks of the seed of the woman looking all the way forward to Mary. Mary. who would be with child because of the Holy Spirit. The prophets were men and sometimes women in the Old Testament. God chose to be a spokesman on the earth. And they really just had two jobs. To proclaim God's word and to foretell future events. So what did they foretell? Look again at verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. He's saying the prophets, they spoke about, they they foretold about the grace that was to be yours. You could be sitting here. You don't have to be those that have been scattered throughout Asia Minor. But for those that have received salvation... They foretold about the grace that would be ours. What is grace? Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. What do we not deserve? We do not deserve eternal life. But it's because of God's grace and his mercy. Mercy is not receiving what we deserve, death. Grace is receiving what we don't deserve, life. They foretold about the grace that would be yours. Peter is looking back and he's speaking about what they were talking about, what what the prophets were foretelling. And remember, he's trying to encourage these people. Prophets spoke of the coming Messiah. Now, of the 31,124 verses in the Bible, you can check them, you can count them, 8,352 are all about biblical prophecy. 27% of the Bible is prophetic. All of the prophecies in Scripture, except for the second coming of Christ, have been fulfilled. That's mind-blowing. Think about it. 300 of those prophecies speak about a coming Messiah. All perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, there was a mathematician who said that just to be able to fulfill eight of those would be one in 10 to the 17th power. What is one in 10 to the 17th power? It's one in 10 with 17 more zeros added on the end. Okay, what does that mean for us that are not really mathematicians? Well, let me, he, he, he um, this mathematician, what he did was he used an illustration. He said, it would be like taking silver dollars and spreading them two feet deep over all of Texas. Why do you think people are moving to Texas right now? Actually, that didn't happen. But two feet deep and taking one silver dollar, taking a red marker pen and marking it with an X and putting it somewhere in that sea of silver dollars and then putting a blindfold on somebody and having them walk around, whether it be in the panhandle or or down in the Houston area or it would be somewhere in the hill country and they reach down and they pick up one Silver dollar, and it's the one that's marked with an X. That would be one in 10 to the 17th power. Jesus, that's eight fulfillments. Jesus fulfilled 300. See, Peter's trying to get them to understand the value of their salvation, why they should be so encouraged about their salvation. The fact is, God wrote us a book, 66 chapters, written by More than 40 different authors over 1,500 years on three different continents, all of it pointing to Jesus, all perfectly fulfilled uh, in the life of Jesus. In fact, I had this in my notes. I wish I had it noted where it came from. But it says prophets are like archers who shoot arrows of truth up into the air. I mean, they just boom, let it go. Arrows of truth, archers like Moses, Isaiah, David, Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, um, Malachi, Zechariah. And then all of a sudden, they all come down right at the foot of the manger. As Galatians 4.4 says, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We understand God's plan of redemption. There should be such a profound encouragement knowing that God made a way for us to have eternal life. Embracing that truth to change who we are. Notice what it says in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. Both those words search and inquire in the intensive. I mean, they didn't just like look around. You ever lose something in a couch? Like pulling it apart to find it? Like, it's just a pen, Bill. But, but, like, but, th- but that's what the prophets did. They searched their own scriptures. They searched other scriptures. They searched things that they were, they were writing. Many times they didn't even understand what they were foretelling. I mean, let me go back to Isaiah 7.14 again, which says that a virgin will conceive and give, you, give birth to a son. I can only imagine that Isaiah is saying, what? Lord, what does that even mean? And then he's maybe thinking, did I just have bad falafel last night? I don't know. But God would, through the power of the Spirit, would give them words to write. They inquired. Look at verse 11. Actually, I'll go back to verse 10. It says, "They, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They wanted to know the person, the time. It was a mystery as to the who, the when, the why, the how, regarding the Messiah to come. Prophets and biblical scholars, they would comb the scriptures trying to understand the grace that was to be yours, to be ours. Peter's writing this to those that are are struggling. He wants them to understand this. The fact is, this grace that was to be ours for those that received Jesus as Lord and Savior, that that now get to be recipients of this incredible grace. But what had to be confusing is that they knew that this Messiah would have to suffer and then he would have subsequent glories, that he would be both a suffering servant and a conquering king. You see that in verse 11, indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ, the king to come, and his subsequent glories. Now notice there's an order there. And I think order, as I've said many times, order in the Bible is very important. First, he would have to suffer. Isaiah 52 and 53 tells us about the suffering servant. Jesus would have to suffer. He would have to go to the cross first. But then his subsequent glories were his resurrection, his ascension, his, 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 his making intervention, uh, intercession for us at the right hand of the Father, and then his soon coming they searched, they inquired, they wanted to know. Now, Jesus referred to all of this in one of the greatest Bible studies ever known to man. And that was in Luke chapter 24. Look what Luke chapter 24 says. This was after Jesus has been resurrected. He's now been talking to these two men on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him. And then all of a sudden he reveals himself to him. And it says, and he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Again, these are Jesus' words. I mean, how could you reject all that Jesus has, uh, all that the prophets have spoken? Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures, the things concerning himself. That's why I... I would never give out just a New Testament to somebody because the Old Testament has so much truth about the coming Messiah. It brings it all together. So first of all, your salvation was foretold by the prophets. Secondly, it was indicated by the Holy Spirit. So how did the prophets know what to write? Good question. Verse 11 tells us, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ. So we know that the prophets had the Holy Spirit in them. Now, when we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior on this side of the resurrection, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. We are sealed until the day of redemption, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. We have all the Holy Spirit we're ever going to need. We just need to walk in the Spirit. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit would come and go. In fact, just look at what happened to Saul. Read about Saul and you see that. The fact is, God wrote a book, but it was the Spirit of the Lord in these prophets. It was the Holy Spirit speaking through men. It was the Spirit of God that was indicating when the Messiah would come and when he would suffer. I'm going to have you just turn to your right a couple pages to 2 Timothy chapter, excuse me, 1 Timothy. Excuse me. Second Peter chapter one. 2 Peter chapter one. First Peter, second Peter. Look at verse nineteen. Peter's saying this, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Verse nineteen, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to the lamp shi- as to uh, a lamp shining in a dark place. It's like if there's a lamp shining in the dark place, you better pay attention to it. Until the day dawns and morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes comes from someone's own interpretation. So like these prophets were just like, hey, I think I'm going to just make up a story about a Messiah to come. This was the Holy Spirit. These were the oracles of God. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but God's... But but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's like a kite. You throw a kite up in the air on a windy day and it's the wind that takes it. That's what these prophets were like. They had the, the Spirit of God, the wind of God, the, the pneuma of God in them, carrying them along. In fact, it is. that's why we call God's word authoritative. It's authoritative. But not only is it authoritative... Is it in it is inerrant. It is without error. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now it doesn't say that, it doesn't say scripture breathed out by God is profitable. It says all scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That word breathed out, it's pneuma, it's the Holy Spirit. It's breathed out by God. All Scripture. This whole book is breathed out by God. That's why I say God wrote a book. And it's profitable for for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is that saying? That is saying not only is it authoritative, but it is sufficient. It is sufficient for all areas of life. That's why 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has given us all things for life and godliness. Notice this. All scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, knowing what's right. For, For reproof, knowing what's not right. For correction, knowing how to get right. For training in righteousness, knowing how to stay right. That's why we live by this book. We spend time in this book so we know we can live it. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's why we are a a Bible church. We understand the importance of God's word. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's inerrant. Here's the point. God breathed into men his word. And it indicated a great salvation that was to come. That should humble us. That should encourage us. I think it was Augustine that first said that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament, the New Testament together, it shows us the greatness of our salvation. Just not some random act. And that's why it's so important that we take advantage of this Bible that we have. So what should we do with the gift of God's word? Let me give you... Five things. First of all, we should read it. I mean, that sounds basic. I mean, when Pam and I first became believers, somebody said, the way you know this God that you've just embraced is to read the word of God daily. And we were foolish enough to think that all Christians did that. And we were shocked when we realized that all Christians didn't do that. God wrote us a book. He sent us a love letter. Study it. Read it. Systematically. In fact, that's why I encourage everybody, I think everybody should have on their desk, a good study Bible. And I would recommend the ESV study Bible because there's so much you can learn about God's word. But not only should we read it, but meditate on it. These words should be on your heart. These words should be on our heart. In fact, I know that uh, um, Psalm 2 says, but his delight is the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. Joshua, after just taking over, taking the nation into the promised land, he was told by the Lord, he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Read it. Meditate. I I like to use the the imagery of marinating in it so it gets deep down inside of you. Third, memorize it. Memorize it. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hidden my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the greatest disciplines we can engage in is memorizing God's word. In fact, that's why every time we meet as a small group, we have a new memory verse. Because we are hiding God's word in our heart. Fourth, live it. Read it, meditate on it, memorize it, live it. This is God's manual for life, whether it be marriage, for child training, for, for relationships, for finance, for businesses, for business, for your relationship with God. And the fact is, there's really only two things we can do with God's word. We can either live underneath it or we live over it. Like we impose our thinking on God's word versus letting God impose his ways upon us. We should always live under the authority of God's word. That's why James one twenty two says, uh, be doers of the word and not only hearers. That's why Luke 4, 646, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? We should read it, meditate on it, memorize it, live it, finally proclaim it. When you understand that this is Holy Spirit inspired, that it was, it was, it was, it was for us, and it speaks about how we can have a saving relationship with the Lord. We should proclaim that to other people. I'm so thankful that back in 1998, people cared enough about me and Pam that they shared the truth of the gospel with us. Never thinking that I'd be a pastor. I never thought I'd be a pastor. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about the fact that we've been, that. That because of this great salvation, he says, if anyone is a Christ, a new creation, the old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And he says that as a result of what we've received, we are now ambassadors for Christ. And we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. And we are called to tell people, be reconciled to God. How do you be reconciled to God? By turning from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And then you can have eternal life. That is the great salvation. We should proclaim it. We should proclaim this salvation that was foretold by the prophets, that was indicated by the Spirit. Third, and it was tested to by the apostles. It was testified to by the apostles. What the prophets foretold came true in Jesus. Who are the apostles? They were chosen by God to walk with Jesus, to witness to his life, his death, his suffering, his resurrection. And ultimately, to preach the message that the prophets had foretold. That's why Jesus said to his disciples, after he had been resurrected, before he ascended into heaven, he says this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And that would happen just a few days later in Pentecost. And you will be my witnesses. Now, Peter was there when that happened. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So it was these 12 that would be the apostles that would testify to the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that these men, these 11 that were, or 12 that were with him, would go out and proclaim the truth of the gospel to mankind. And it is, and and we are the recipients of that. The, The prophets foretold it. The Holy Spirit had indicated it. And now the, the, the apostles testified to it. The fact is, if you look at verse 12, it's an amazing passage. It was revealed to them, the apostles, those who were preaching. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. They were serving you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets look beyond their time on earth to those who would one day hear the truth, see the truth, and then proclaim the truth. That must have been an awesome realization the prophets, for the apostles, knowing that they would take who Jesus was and how he lived and what he taught and why he died and why he was raised and how he would send that throughout all the world. And as a result, people would be saved. It must have been an amazing thing to think that we get to be a part of that. Notice the word announce. Announce verse 12 in the things that have now been announced that word announced it's a formal public declaration it's to tell it's to declare so here's kind of how it works the message that the prophets foretold that the spirit indicated was testified to by the apostles and many heard the the message that was announced then they believed and received the good news and they declared it to others until the message got to you and then you embrace the truth of salvation of Jesus Christ. So the question is: does it stop with you or does it move on? Do you share it with others? The fact is, this is the great salvation. Peter wants these people that are suffering to know that their salvation is a reason to rejoice. We see in verse 8 with great rejoicing that's inexpressible. And it's why we preach. The gospel. It's what the prophets preach. It's what Jesus preached. It's what Peter preached. It's what Paul preached. Not seven ways to improve your life or your marriage. Not six ways to be a better you. Not five ways to have your best life now or four ways to financial freedom or three ways to blah, blah, blah. Second Peter four 2 Second Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word in season and out of season. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, the good news. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jews first and also to the Greek. The gospel is for all mankind. Now, when people in the New Testament got saved, what was the first thing they did? Not trick question. They got baptized. They got baptized. It was always the first step of of obedience. In fact, Jesus says, if you confess me before men or if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before the Father. But if 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 you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father. And they would do that by being baptized. In fact, when Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, preached... At Pentecost, it says 3,000 people got saved. 3,000 people were baptized. I mean, talk about a lot of T-shirts they'd have to give away. We give away T-shirts when we get baptized. So let me ask you a question. Have you been baptized on the right side of your salvation? What does that mean? Since receiving Christ as Lord and Savior, have you been baptized? The Bible is very clear. You you see it described over and over and over again in the New Testament. People would receive Christ. They would get baptized. In fact, even in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, as as Philip is, is, is reading with him from Isaiah, he finally says, what's to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip says, nothing. And they see water, and he goes down into the water and comes up out of it. Have you been baptized? Have you been baptized on the right side of your salvation in the manner that Jesus was baptized in the New Testament by full water immersion? Now, this is where sometimes excuses come in. And I know this is a little bit of an excursus, but there's a reason. Some of the the different excuses, like, I want to wait till my parents come here which might be never, or I, I just don't know. I think I need to know more about the Bible. I mean, can you imagine that happening at Pentecost with Peter? It's like, okay, like this is all, we're just declaring when we get baptized, we're, we're going into the water to, re, to signify our, 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 our old life is being buried with Christ. And now we're being raised to walk in newness of light. It's a declaration of what God has done in our lives. The fact is, you never see people making excuses in Scripture. They get saved, they get baptized. They get saved, they get baptized. Pam and I have been believers, I don't know, four or five years. I was on staff now at Prestonwood. I was the minister of spiritual development, which meant I was over all the groups, which meant I had a lot of um, administrative stuff to do, which wasn't a lot of fun. But um, uh, I had about 35... um, ministers in my division, which is a big church. And one of them is a guy named Jarrett. And his wife, Debbie, Pam was meeting with. And he had gone to seminary, got his Master of Divinity, bright guy. In fact, he's pastor of a great church in Houston now, Champion Forest. But Pam was talking to her. Her name's Debbie. And she finally admitted she'd never been baptized. Grew up in a church. Married a pastor never been baptized. But now she was kind of fearful because, like, what would people think? Pam says, people would be excited. She she went and talked to her husband about it. He said, absolutely. He went and talked to our pastor, Jack Graham, about it. Jack Graham goes, absolutely. I'm telling you, that was an amazing celebration. She'd She'd been a believer for years. She got baptized. The fact is, It's our opportunity to declare what Christ has done for us, this great salvation that I've embraced. So let me ask you again. Have you been saved? Most important question. And secondly, have you been baptized? By the way, we're baptizing here on February 6th, just in case you were wondering. If you want to be baptized, take your little connect cards and let us know. Shameless plug. Your salvation was foretold by the prophets. It was indicated by the Spirit. It was testified to by the disciples, by the apostles. And finally, it was longed for by the angels. Okay, this is a really cool section of Scripture. Look again at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things in which angels long to look. There is no definitive article. There's no definite article there. It's not just speaking about specific angels, but angels. It's like they've been looking on this whole process of regeneration, of restoration. They've been longing to see God's unfolding plan of redemption. longing. That word longing, it's epithumeo. It's a very strong desire. It's it's a word that's used for lust. It refers to a positive desire. desire, and To look. Now it's not just like glance. But it's the same word that's used in John chapter 20 verse 5 where Peter stoops down and looks into the tomb. They've been longing to look. There's this intense interest These angels are sitting outside the drama of sin and redemption, yet they have front row seats. It's like they're looking over the balcony to see how this great salvation would unfold. How in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. To take our place on the cross, to cover our sin with the shedding of his blood, and then be raised. And by that union with Christ, we could be raised with Christ. Listen, if angels love to look at the work of God in saving sinners, how much more should we? Lord, help us to never take for granted what you've done for us. See, that's what Peter is trying to get those who are suffering, those who are going to, through trials, to understand. Listen, you have a great salvation. Embrace that. Celebrate that. In fact, look what, look what Luke chapter fifteen verse ten says. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. I mean, they're cheering, as like every time somebody gets saved, like they're they're rejoicing. Because they're seeing, once again, God's amazing plan of of restoration back to himself taking place. As our worship team comes up, think about this. That we get to experience this salvation. That the prophets foretold. That the Holy Spirit indicated. That the apostles testified to and that the angels long to look. So let me ask you a question one more time. Have you received salvation? Not do you think you need salvation? Have you received it? The Bible says if we confess our sins, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, will we be saved? It comes through confession, repentance. Father, I thank you for this text of Scripture that just reminds us how amazing our salvation is, a salvation that angels long to look, a salvation that that prophets spoke of, that the Holy Spirit indicated, and that the apostles testified to. Father, I pray that maybe if there's someone here right now that doesn't know Jesus as Lord, that they would confess their sin, They would turn from their sin and that they would embrace you as Lord. They would believe that Jesus is God, that he died, that he lived a sinless life, that he died in their place and he was raised on the third day. Lord, move among us now. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.